Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recovery Cast. Ron and Dave here. We took a short hiatus, and we're back today with a very special show, which we'll get to in a minute. We recently announced a slight change to our schedule. Rather than a new show every two weeks, we're now releasing shows as they're ready. That may be one every week for a while, and there may be a three or four week break sometimes, depending on our schedules. To subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast app, just search for My Recovery Cast, always a single word, or sign up for notification emails on our website, myrecoverycast.com, or join our private Facebook group, also called My Recovery Cast, to get notified each time we post an episode. Followers of this show know that to date we have concentrated on interviews that explore the history, culture, and recovery process found in the Narcotics Anonymous Fellowship. Today, we're coming at it with more of a wide-angle lens. Our guest today is William White, a renowned addiction treatment and recovery historian. Bill began his work in the addiction field in 1969 as a street worker helping addicts find recovery. In the more than 45 years since, he has become one of the field's leading voices, co-authoring or authoring over 400 articles and 20 books, including his classic, Slaying the Dragon, The History of Addiction Treatment and Recovery in America, and his most recent, Let's Go Make Some History, Chronicle of the New Addiction Recovery Advocacy Movement. He has a master's in addiction studies and is a well-traveled consultant, researcher, trainer, counselor, and clinical director, just to name a few of his hats. He has been featured in a Bill Moyers PBS documentary, a Showtime documentary, and a film that got a lot of buzz in the last few years entitled The Anonymous People. He has been a volunteer consultant to the Faces and Voices of Recovery Movement since its inception in 2001. Bill first got on my radar when someone sent me an article about NA they had read on the internet. I started reading, expecting the usual focus on the more dramatic aspects of street addiction and early recovery that can keep the public's attention, but frankly, don't reveal much about the reality of the amazing long-term recovery lifestyle. But this article was different. I just kept getting drawn deeper into the writer's truly nuanced grasp of NA, its history, its culture, its literature, its subtle differences from other fellowships, its unique contributions, such as the wording of the first step and the early assertion in NA literature that addiction is a disease. And he put all of this in context with his equally thorough and nuanced grasp of the larger addiction treatment and recovery picture. I was so moved and impressed by this that almost on a lark, but out of genuine gratitude, I Googled until I found his email address and sent him a thank you note about it. He was gracious enough to respond, and this started a dialogue between us that showed me why it is that his grasp of his field is so incredibly nuanced. I became just one of the many people he would open an email dialogue with as he was working on certain articles. He always approached this dialogue with humility, curiosity, encouragement to be challenged, really an example to me of how to approach a subject with an honest desire to grasp it more fully. Dave, too, as a longtime researcher himself into the history of the recovery movement, has long had a deep respect for Bill and his writings. One day we just looked at each other and said, what the heck, worst he can do is say no, and invited him to be a guest on our podcast. So you can only imagine how thrilled we were when he agreed to do it. And here we are, 
Bill, welcome to the Recovery Cast, and thank you so much for agreeing to sit down with us today for this conversation. Welcome, Ron and Dave. It's a pleasure to be with you today. We, uh, we both go back a ways, so I'm really looking forward to our discussions today. Well, Dave, why don't you, why don't you start off the questioning? Thanks, Ron. Bill, it's good to see you again. Um, I happen to have owned, uh, for a long time, your first edition of Slaying the Dragon, and then along comes the second edition in 2014, and it has this magnificent chapter about Narcotics Anonymous, its history and culture. Um, so I, I'm curious what drew you to the study of Narcotics Anonymous and, and what in particular uh, was new in the NA message and the NA life uh, in mid-century America dealing with the problem of addiction? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a lifelong history to answer that question, Dave. I started work um, in the addiction field in the late 1960s and within a few years discovered that there'd been a whole uh, network of recovery mutual aid organizations in the 17 and 1800s and an elaborate treatment system that collapsed. And I'd worked in the field for a few years and, and literally was shocked to discover this whole world that existed. So the history bug kind of bit me, and I began collecting and doing research on the history of treatment and recovery. Uh, and after about two decades of that, I decided it was probably time to pull that together in a book. So in 1990, I began to do the original research for Slaying the Dragon. And as part of that, uh, contacted Ernie Kurtz, who was the Harvard-trained historian that was best known for his book, Not God, A History of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and it asked Ernie to help me with the AA chapters of that book, but as it turned out, Ernie actually mentored me on the whole sort of science and scholarship of how to do and write and research history. So I went from sort of his student to then a collaborator and he and I became increasingly interested in what we call the varieties of recovery experience. So we really began to research this growing world of secular, spiritual, and religious recovery mutual aid groups as we continued through that. In 2009, I knew that I wanted to do a, fo a focused chapter on NA in the new edition of Slaying the Dragon. So I enlisted the support of Chris Budnick, in, in Boyd Picard uh, to collaborate with me on the research and writing of that. And, and that really began what's been a wonderful uh, ongoing collaboration as we've worked on various papers and research and collected things related to, to NA. And I think if there's a, a theme that emerged out of our, our research on that was, was in some ways a reaction to the idea that that NA is simply an AA clone and often gets wrapped into the umbrella of AA and other 12-step groups as if they're all similar and whatever we say about AA could be indiscriminately applied to NA and other groups. And we took the position that NA actually was quite distinct from, from AA, even though it has enormous gratitude for what it was able to draw from the experience of AA. And so we began to look at NA in terms of its own very unique history and culture and a unique body of literature and its own organizational issues. And so it's been a wonderful journey to begin to explore that with Chris and Boyd and other, other NA history researchers. 
Well, that's re- really beautifully said. Uh, do you have like a, in your mind a, a top few list of what it is about NA that you that you find notable and distinct? You know, I think his I think historically there are probably um, probably five five or six things that really kind of jump out at me and come to mind. Uh, you know, the first of those would be that that NA was the first uh, con- historical confirmation that AA's 12 steps could be adapted to other problems other than alcoholism. And I think, I think NA's successful adaptation and its subsequent growth really set the stage for this mass proliferation of 12-step groups for virtually every kind of problem of living imaginable. I think a second kind of historical milestone was the fact that even though there were recovery mutual aid organizations going back, as I said, into the 1700s, we really don't find recovery stories of people recovering from addictions other than to alcohol until we get into the late 1940s. And I think those those early stories coming out of, of, of NA and NA members who use themselves as living proof to challenge the once an addict, always an addict kind of mantra that was dominant in the culture at that time was enormously important to virtually everything and all the progress that has emerged since then. And I think a third thing would be that NA probably more than any other recovery mutual aid group, really widened the doorways of recovery for women and for people of color and for young people. Um, I think an undertold story of NA, for example, is the very early role that women played in very significant leadership roles within NA. And so I think that the, the diversification of recovery in many ways begins with the story of NA. And, and, and Ron mentioned this, this conceptualization of addiction as a focal point within NA's first step. And, and that's enormously important. We had a, there was a concept of inebriety in the 19th century, which really was sort of the 19th century equivalent of addiction. And it was sort of a central organizing concept. But that concept really got destroyed in the early 20th century with prohibition movements that then split the world into good drugs and bad drugs. And suddenly we then moved into the mid 20th century where we had alcohol, tobacco, uh, and and many prescription medications uh, emerging as celebrated drugs within the culture as well as caffeine. And then we had the prohibited drugs emerging as bad drugs and saw those as radically different in, in, And Jimmy Kay's fight to conceptualize addiction and and make that the central concept in NA's first step in 1954 was enormously important. And I think NA gets less credit than it deserves for that pioneering step, which today, of course, is a central part of the the conceptualization of addiction as a brain disease and a recognition that there are common reward pathways for virtually all of the addictions. I think a fifth um, kind of thing is this specific advocacy of addiction as a disease. AA is often given credit or blame, depending on whether you're an advocate or critic of, of a disease concept of addiction. 
But actually, uh, as Ernie Kurtz has, in, in several papers has pointed out, uh, the, the disease concept really doesn't originate with, with AA, and, and disease is not a central concept within AA. However, it is a very central concept within NA that anticipated the emergence of all the neurobiological research and breakthroughs of addiction as a brain disease that we see today. But I think if there's probably more than any of those specific contributions, I would really say that the fact that, it, that NA created an effective framework, not just to initiate recovery, but to live long-term in recovery from addiction, and particularly addiction to things that were seen as intractable, such as opioid addiction, those recovery stories offering that living proof, I think is probably in a by far most historical you know, significance. Wow, there's so much that you said there. One thing, one of the, <clears throat> the last points that you made there about, uh, you could say that uh, N.A. pioneered the, the concept of, of focusing on it as a disease. Of course, A.A. had other language that was similar, like malady. Uh, but uh, exactly. the use of the term disease and the emphasis on the disease concept, which then you said was a precursor for what later followed on as sort of the modern treatment of it as a, as a brain disease, neuro, neurochemical, neurobiological, etc. In some ways, that's biting us back when uh, the medical community says, this is a medical problem best treated by medicine. <clears throat> and uh, I don't know, it's just my, my thought. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. <laughs> I think you know that I've done a fair amount of writing on the issue of medication and recovery and all the controversies surrounding that. And, uh, and as we've, you and I have conversed back and forth on it, um, I, I, I think it's true. And I think it's, I think NA's position is an abstinence-based program and its stance, particularly on the maintenance medications, has sort of placed it sort of as a, a central, sort of at the centerpiece of this controversy. Um, we, we, we do know some things about medications as it relates to NA, um, and I could probably enumerate at least a few of those. Uh, we know, for example, uh, and, and let me just highlight this by saying, I'm particularly concerned about this given the current opioid epidemic in the United States and the fact that repeatedly we hear all kinds of responses to that epidemic and rarely hear the name of NA mentioned at a professional or public level. And so when I, when I focus on that with NA, I think of a number of things in terms of NA's relevance to this epidemic. And one of those is that we know that 68% of NA members have a past history of either opiate addiction or used opioids as part of their larger addiction pattern. And 22% of NA members report opioids as a primary drug. At the same time, we know that less than 1% of NA members self-report in NA membership surveys they are currently taking methadone or buprenorphine. Now, in contrast to that, when we go to the scientific studies, what we find is that studies of methadone treatment programs and buprenorphine treatment programs, we find 
high self-reports of involvement with AA and NA, and the studies, they often don't separate the two. So I'm not very good at my ability to separate out NA from that because they're not reported in the literature. But we get high reports of involvement, but interestingly, uh, common reports that those members do not disclose their medication status as they participate with NA or AA. And if they do, it's primarily at the sponsorship relationship level and not disclosed at the meeting. So the level of, of participation of people in medication treatment in NA may be a bit underreported. We know that NA has outlined its stance on these medications in a series of publications and currently one currently uh, in revision. But we also know that attitudes towards medication at local NA groups vary considerably and they vary geographically within the United States. Um, we often hear allegations that people, are, people who are addicted to opioids are dissuaded from participation in A because of NA's stance on those medications. But actually, we have no research to be able to say what percentage of people or what number of people in the United States are dissuaded from NA participation based on those, that stance. What we do know, I think, from the literature to date is NA is particularly well-suited for certain individuals for whom either one, um, medications are not accessible to them, medications are not desirable to them as part of their recovery, or people who are in safety-sensitive positions for whom uh, medications may be precluded. I'm thinking of pilots and physicians and other healthcare professionals. We also know from the research, though, that combining medication uh, and significant involvement in 12-step fellowships can significantly elevate recovery outcomes. And finally, we know that there's some move right now professionally to try to integrate medications and 12-step-oriented addiction treatment, and I would, particularly, for example, in places like Hazelden, Betty Ford. I think the question that we face, particularly as it relates to NA, is we currently have about 230,000 people on methadone maintenance in the United States. We have about 800,000 people on buprenorphine at the present time for treatment for addiction. And, and, the, and what we do know is the vast majority of those individuals are only going to be in medication-assisted treatment for a short time. So the question is, what percentage of those people are going to need significant recovery supports during or following medication to be able to sustain a recovery process? And will, will those individuals be able to engage? I think you know that I've been a strong advocate that medication assistant treatment programs need to assertively link literally all of their patients to a recovery mutual aid structure for long-term recovery support including where appropriate to NA. And I think NA will be a very significant long-term recovery resource for those individuals currently on those medications. But as we proceed, there's going to be great controversies as we work our way through this stage, uh, as, as attested by the fact that I get uh, love letters and hate mail from opposite ends of the spectrum on the same days, most days. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, there's so many tricky issues in there. It's kind of uh, separating 
I mean, we have a, a policy of no opinion on outside issues, and so much of what you're talking about there could be defined as outside issues in terms of what what treatments are best for what conditions at what stages and all of that. We 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 just can't have and don't have an opinion on stuff like that. And then there's a few inside issues like what constitutes me being clean, <laughs> and what are the implications of that, and and you know the that pamphlet that you made reference to that's under uh, development right now by NA World Services, makes uh, throws out some some distinctions between a focus on the third tradition, which says uh, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop using, uh, and so you know there's an approach there's an approach being crafted there, and I do see NA resisting very strongly the idea that uh, outside forces will. Uh, define for us what total abstinence is and what it isn't. That's a that's a tough one. You know that that for each of us internally, uh, this is a question that's central. Uh, being totally abstinence is central to our recovery. So, yeah, you're right. It's uh, we're at, yeah. I think the the challenge is going to be as an internal question. What's the degree of welcome that more than one million individuals will receive as the, at the point they make contact with NA? Yeah, I think, well, I think there's a second issue, and that's what, let's assume that we solve that. Let's assume that that, that that degree of welcome is very welcome like every other newcomer. Every newcomer is very welcome, and they're treated with welcome, and then they're made to feel welcome. Right on that question's heels is what is the manner of integrating that population or those people into the kind of normal routines of NA, standing up for 30 days clean, uh, mm -hmm. getting, uh, you know, claiming your clean time versus being feeling like you're somehow a second-class citizen if your clean time is defined as not really clean time, yet to you, you call it clean time. I mean, right. so, so I think that welcome question is critical, but it, it is immediately then followed by continued thorny issues that'll take a little while, I think, to, to work through. They will, for sure. You said one other thing, which I just wanted to highlight, which is, uh, uh, you know, this thing about uh, the first step in NA is powerlessness over my addiction and how that ha has been a critical offering of NA to the whole uh, recovery movement, and which, of course, I agree with and I, I feel strongly about. One aspect of it that I think, as you say, is under... What, what did you say, under-reported, under-told about? I forgot mm -hmm. the particular word you used. Is um, Bill Wilson used to always say that uh, the, the, the great strength of AA is that it focuses on one thing, does one thing, and that one thing only, and therefore can do that one thing supremely well. And that's how the development of the traditions kept outside issues outside, kept professional stuff to, to the professionals, et cetera, and continue to zero in on that one thing. And that one thing is alcohol, alcoholism, and uh, sobriety. And so uh, NA, when NA faced the challenge of when you change that first step, do you change it from a single thing to a multiplicity? Like drugs, drugs is a multiple, mm -hmm. that's not a single thing, uh, or narcotics, or you know, and how do you how do you both have it very broad and yet a singularity? And I think that aspect of this is really kind of an amazing 
I wonder if they stumbled on it or thought about it on purpose <laughs> or exactly what, but when they said powerlessness over our addiction, they kept that singularity, that one thing, that one thing only, so we can do that one thing supremely well without kind of blurring it with a multiplicity. I just wonder if that's ever occurred to you or if you see it. You know, it, it has. When I, I remember the moment that I first ran across some handwritten notes from Jimmy K on both this central idea of addiction and disease. And they, it literally, they literally took my breath away. I mean, I couldn't believe that somebody in 1954 had so clearly conceptualized those issues and, and fought so hard to have that implanted as sort of a foundational concept in NA. Now, having said that, I want to point out, I think, one point of vulnerability for virtually all of the fellowships at this point, and even as other fellowships have moved towards an abstinence state on multiple drugs, including AA, uh, is we haven't touched the issue of tobacco addiction, and which is an extremely controversial issue, uh, given the fact that we now have studies that the vast majority of people leaving addiction treatment are more likely to die of nicotine addiction than they are from the drug to which they were, the primary drug to which they were admitted for treatment. And of course, the historical loss of so many of our founders from addiction-related diseases related to smoking. Including Bill Wilson. Yes. Yeah, you could just literally go through the list. You could, you could basically say Bill Wilson died of addiction. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 I'm, and he also died of blindness. There's a sort of conceptual blindness. Mm. People can, can go into, me, into the rooms carrying oxygen tanks, chain-smoking cigarettes, talking about the joys of drug-free living while they're dying of addiction. It's... Well, yeah, Bill, we could talk about Bill in, in those terms, but also what's really has changed today. I mean, if, if somebody came into the rooms of NA and said that their, uh, their substance was nicotine, would we expect that they would have the same welcoming uh, as someone who comes in and says that, you know, their drug is opiates or marijuana or whatever? Yeah, or, or what, I'm also thinking, Dave, what would happen if somebody came in and announced they were changing their clean date to the date that they stopped smoking, as opposed to the original date when they shed other drugs of more traditional varieties? That would be it's, a, it's usually shared as an addendum to one's traditional queen date, which right. was, you know, the substance they came in on. But it, it is a major issue. And, and uh, as someone who smoked for a while in, uh, in, in, into my recovery, I gave everything up some time ago. Um, yeah, it, it definitely impacts every aspect of health. Uh, so I, I, I'm curious if, if nicotine were uh, uh, declared unlawful, for instance, and suddenly, you know, it costs – What's well, getting close to that anyway? Uh, you know, a uh, hundred bucks for a pack of cigarettes. Would would we see more people coming in just based on nicotine addiction? I I think that's possible. I, I mean, I think there may be a day in the future where nicotine addiction is integrated into all addiction treatment, and and nicotine abstinence is integrated into twelve step recovery programs. I think there's a day in the future where we could see that. Now you're not thinking of going after caffeine, now, are you? You're 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 going, you're going to stop it right here. I'm, I'm not. Of course. Okay, good. You don't have the, the number of people dying. I can still enjoy a cup of coffee. Absolutely. Now that you've now that you've threatened and offended about sixty percent of our audience, but no, uh, there's one. Here's just a couple of observations about this nicotine thing and kind of where it fits. 
that number one is if you if you went to an AA meeting, I suspect, and you said, and you announced that you quit smoking, mm-hmm. uh, it, you would it would probably be a supported and and applauded on some level, but there'd be a lot of nervousness about the fact this is an outside issue. It's that singleness of purpose thing again. This is about alcohol and staying sober, etc. Uh, it's not really about your other manifestations of addiction. In NA, it is about your other manifestations of addiction. Absolutely. And, and those are all inside issues. And if you come, I've seen it many times. People go to an NA meeting and say, I've got 30 days off of c- cigarettes. Now, as Dave said, it's an addendum to my, to my <laughs> it's not a change in my clean date, mind you, but it's, it's 30 days and that's universally applauded and by smokers, by non-smokers, who understand that this is a difficult, addictive challenge that someone in recovery faces. And you so, know, I, I think because of NA's first step, I think we could expect NA will actually be the leader in that movement. It may be difficult to see that right now, but I would project as we move forward, NA will be the leader among the fellowships because of the way it's framed addiction. Yeah, let me give you a, a little model that I use it to understand some of these things. Take an imaginary line, sort of, you know, right, uh, right in the mid. Uh, I don't know how to say that for someone who can't see my hand moving. <laughs> you know, an imaginary line, right, uh, sort of like a pole vaulter's line. You know, uh, in the middle of the frame here, and above the line are behaviors that would make me change my clean date. Below the line are behaviors for which I don't have to change my clean date. But the vertical axis here is extremely addictive behaviors and behaviors making me sick vis-a-vis my addiction. So, okay, what is, our, what is your goal as a member? And I'll challenge the sponsee with this. What is your goal as a member? See how close you can live to that line and stay under it. So, in other words, go on about your, addi- your, your addictive business with your gambling, with your sexuality, with your eating, with your smoking, and all these things, but yet do not engage in things that might make you change your clean date. Okay, so if that's your goal, that's your I- ideal, then, you know, I-, I can't say much about that except uh, that's not my goal. You know, <coughs> my goal is I don't think freedom lies, and you could f- – philosophically sort of ask the question, where does freedom lie? Right up close to that line where I get to do all of this stuff? Or does freedom line lie way below that line where I am free from all of this stuff and I live, I live in freedom from my addiction? So, you know, that line concept has a couple of interesting implications. It applies to our prior conversation, like is Suboxone, for example, above the line or below the line? You know, and that's really the only controversy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If it's above the line, then you begin, you begin counting your clean time when you take your last dose of Suboxone. But you're still welcome at the meetings and blah, 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 but you don't call it I'm above the line until you stop taking the Suboxone, if Suboxone is above the line. Nicotine has, is understood in NA to be a seriously addictive uh, Smoking is a seriously addictive process. Nicotine is a seriously addictive drug, uh, dangerous to the point of fatal. Uh, Everybody knows that. Everybody gets that. And yet below the line for reasons of historical precedent and uh, because uh, there's some question about how how high a bar you want to set for the newcomer who's just walking Mm -hmm. the door 
And for many reasons, nicotine is below the line, but it's not discounted as not an addictive process within the culture of NA, it seems. Mm -hmm. Which it is in other fellowships. Okay. Can I ask you to back up here for a minute, Bill? We were on the issue of uh, medication assistance, and you wrote a a paper that got published by SAMHSA in 2011, Narcotics Anonymous in the Pharmacotherapeutic Treatment of Opioid Addiction in the Mm -hmm. United States. And it's very comprehensive, 64 pages. And I have to tell you that when I first read it, I was angry. (laughs) Because it seemed to me like you were calling out NA to go in a direction that I didn't want to see it go. Uh, I reread that and within the last few months, and I had kind of a different take. But then along comes your paper that you wrote and published uh, just a few months ago, The Paucity of Attention to Narcotics Anonymous in Current Public, Professional, and Policy Responses to Rising Opioid Addiction. Uh, again, very comprehensive and, and very well stated. And you were just making these points that NA is an abstinence-based model Uh, is about to get overlooked, it seems, as the government prepares to spend $2 billion setting up uh, centers for excellence, which are really, let's face it, they're medication assistance centers. Uh, So I'm curious, what was the blowback from the first piece that you wrote? Was the second piece in any way a reaction to that? And did your uh, opinions about the uh, conformity of the two concepts change at all in that interim? You know, they did some. Um, the, The first paper... Um, it was sort of like a Rorschach test. Whatever you brought to the paper was what you could read into it. So I got in- incredible reactions from so many diverse points. And, and like I said, uh, if I was concerned about my mental health, that's probably one of the papers I would have chosen not to, to, to write in my lifetime. But I just felt like it was an incredibly important issue to be able to, all I wanted to do was stir very serious discussion uh, about that. And uh, the time since, um, I was so alarmed. There were, within a a matter of a few months, there was a CNN special on opioid addiction. There was an ABC special and a 60-minute segment. And the words NA were not spoken in any of those. And I thought, you know, where are we at that we've had this major thrust toward biomedical, you know, medication models of treatment, and we've completely lost this larger arena, even if you support those medications, as I in recent years have tended to do, none of us have have said that medications constitute recovery from addiction, that there's this much larger global process of personal transformation within which those medications must be embedded. So, what, what we did was uh, I reached out to, to three colleagues, uh, Mark Galanter from New York University, John Kelly from Harvard, Keith Humphreys from Stanford. And what I said was, let's, let's ask people, why are we not hearing Narcotics Anonymous mentioned in the discussion of this epidemic right now? And so we began to poll friends and, 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 and just people that we knew and professional colleagues and what we ran across was this unbelievable litany of, of ideas about ANA that were absolutely contradicted by the scientific research some of us had participated in, do, in conducting. For example, first off, we, we, we kept hearing references to NA as a treatment for addiction. 
And, and, and you and Ron and I well know Narcotics Anonymous is not a treatment for addiction. There's this huge difference between clinically oriented, professionally directed treatments on the one hand and recovery mutual aid organizations on the other. And it's like an apples and orange. You can't say for you can't criticize NA because it's not an it's it's not an evidence-based treatment for addiction because no recovery mutual aid organization is that. So it's we started with that mischaracterization. We had people saying, well, you know, NA is not accessible. You know, I, I, we would really entertain it, but it's simply not available in most places. Well, I think some people are operating off 20 and 30 year old information because as you well know, we now have 67,000 NA meetings worldwide, more than 27,000 in the United States and territories. And, and the, the growth of NA has been exponential, not only worldwide, but also in local communities. And with the advent of online meetings, and more and more NA-related resources online, um, to say that NA is inaccessible is simply not true. We heard NA lacks clean time. I'm, I hesitate to refer people there. Well, again, if we go and actually look at the history of NA, that actually was probably true at a point in many communities when NA was first getting started, but not true today. The average clean time right now, we have 47% of NA members now have 11 or more years of continuous abstinence. 91% have at least a year of continuous abstinence. 85% are involved in substantial service commitments. You're talking about a strong recovery culture when you begin to look at those numbers. So we, we challenge people who had those views to check out their local NA community and really see if those past perceptions were, were, were present. Uh, as we believe they were not. We, we heard, uh, you know, NA is not safe for young people. And we had the one study we have on that done by John Kelly at Harvard found that it, issues of safety coming up by young people were extremely rare within NA. And when we studied young people that disengaged from NA participation, safety was simply not on the list of things that contributed to that. We said, uh, we, we heard things like, NA is not appropriate for women, ethnic minorities, and historically disenfranchised populations. And we thought, well, now, wait a minute. If we look at the membership surveys of the major recovery mutual aid organizations, NA membership is 41% women. That's the highest percentage of women in any recovery mutual aid organization other than women for sobriety. 25% of NA members are people of color. That is the most culturally diverse fellowship that exists within the United States. We heard allegations that NA was anti-treatment. And there's no question, if you listen around the tables, talk to NA members, you're going to get members describing experiences of maltreatment or exploitation in treatment settings that they've had experiences with. But that's not a central thrust of the NA program. And NA, in fact, has substantial efforts through its H&I committees to establish strong relationships with treatment organizations. We heard reports that NA is not appropriate for people on medication. And again, we, 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 we come back to research we've recently done talking about not only high percentage of exposure, but people in medication-assisted treatment who are participating in a not only 
great high participation, but it's ex been extremely beneficial to their recovery. We heard, that we heard, well, I can't refer to NA because most of my, the people that I work with have co-occurring psychiatric disorders, and NA has an anti-medication policy related to psychotropic medications. And we went, wait a minute, we've got survey data of NA members telling us that one quarter of NA members are currently on some psychotropic medication for a co-occurring psychiatric illness. There, we simply don't see that kind of anti-medication bias that might have existed 20 or 30 years ago. We heard NA requires a religious orientation, that too many people are turned off by the spiritual dimensions of that program. And yet what we look at is when we've actually done the studies, religious or spiritual orientation is not a predictor of who engages and remains engaged in the NA program or who benefits from it. And finally, in all of these discussions of the opioid epidemic and all of the, the, the horrific cost, both human and financial, there's, there's almost no reference to, to, to NA's role that it's contributing to reducing those human and financial costs. And yet when we get, the, when we take a look at the scientific studies, we find that participation in 12-step fellowships uh, produces dramatic reductions in, in social cost related to addiction. And it does so at no cost to individuals, families, governmental agencies, or private payers. So in, in summary, we, we ran across these litany of public and professional conceptions about NA that simply didn't match the reality of the science that we had been participated in developing. What are, you, what are you hearing from uh, the treatment community in, in response to that? Are people saying, well, wow, you, you've, you've made me rethink my, my position on NA? You know, what? it's really interesting because we've actually had kind of a mea culpa. I've had emails from large numbers of treatment professionals that said, you know, you're right. A lot of my views about NA that I've applied to my clinical work is really based on dated information. And I really need to get back out in my local community get to some open meetings and try to really update myself on where NA is at today. Because I'm, I'm clearly not, my views clearly aren't reflecting what you're describing with the data. You know, it, it makes me wonder how, what NA is, what, where the onus of responsibility for this, this uh, gap between reality or, you know, between perception and the reality of NA lies. I, I think I think your article, if I'm not mistaken, had two focuses. One was the treatment, or two uh, intended audiences. One was the treatment community. The other was the press. And so the press also seemed to just look right past NA and not mention it at all. But my what, what of real interest to me is what about NA itself? We have this phrase in the traditions attraction rather than promotion. Our public relations policy will, based, will be based on attraction rather than promotion. And I personally find that one of the most difficult uh, distinctions to really make in a meaningful way, the, dif the distinction between attraction and promotion. But it often translates into, we can't toot our own horn out there. I mean, that seems fairly clear. That would be promotion. But providing information like you just laid out I just don't know how we do it. Do you have any thoughts on that? Any, like if you're speaking to an NA service audience, any thoughts on how we can better get that story told? 
Well, you know, in contrast, we have, we've talked about this preoccupation with medications. We have big pharma and we have medication-assisted treatment programs aggressively promoting medication-assisted treatment at the level of press and the level of policy. So the question becomes, where are the voices that are promoting abstinence-based pathways of long-term addiction recovery, particularly opioid addiction recovery? And the answer is, where are the NA stories at the level of the local press? I'm not talking about violations of anonymity, but I'm talking about working with the press to be able to, to, to make more visible the stories of recovery within NA. And by comparison there, we, we have all these stories on the medications and issues around medications, but we don't have the recovery stories. And, and the, the attraction versus promotion, um, I don't think you want to promote NA the way big pharma promotes medications or the way medication-assisted treatment programs promote medication. But at the same time, how do you have attraction if NA is invisible within a local community? And I go back to the early NA minutes from 1953 and 1954, and all of the ideas were generated about how to convey the message that this new resource called Narcotics Anonymous is going to be available. And that list is stunning because it could virtually be implemented today by any local in a, in a group. Where is that found? These are the early um, notes, minutes from the early uh, meetings of NA in California in 1953 and 1954. So maybe magshare.org. Yeah, there was like a shopping list. We're going to go, we're going to, you know, we're going to get some no local newspaper articles. We're going to talk to our local, we're going to meet with the local police chief and on and on. And, 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 and you got to, here, and here's the difference. In, in the 1950s, N.A. rose in the most hostile social climate that any recovery mutual aid organization has ever faced. I mean, it was, it was horrific. This was the 1950s, the Boggs Act and life sentences for, for, for drug offenses, loitering addict laws where you could, be, you could be arrested for loitering with another known addict. Uh, you had people on probation and parole in NA who could literally have been violated and sent back to prison merely for the act of attending an, an NA meeting. So if you, if you think of that climate and the list of things that were generated to sort of begin to change that public attitude and those policies and compare that to what's possible today with this larger recovery advocacy movement underway in the United States. Uh, there's a lot of potential to increase NA's visibility. We well, know Bill. I'm and sorry. Still comply with the with the traditions in that process. Bill, I, I've always been impressed by the efforts of well, naturally what went on the West Coast, uh, but in, in Danny Carlson's original uh, fellowship in New York City, that he was able to gain access to Time Magazine, Saturday Evening Post, New York Times, putting stories out on the AP, making that very message that addicts can recover. Uh, in a mutual aid society. Absolutely, and, the, and the, the, the difficulty with that in the early New York experience was doing that in a manner that violated what would become the traditions of NA in terms of using his full name at the level of press, for example, and the controversies that, were, that arose around that. He could just as easily, with a little guidance, had the traditions been in place and understood, he could just as easily have done the same thing 
while protecting his enemies. Absolutely. Yeah, you know what? I think, I think one of the challenges with, with the advocacy movement becoming as visible as it is, and more and more AA and NA members joining that advocacy movement, one of the challenges is going to be how do we tease out the difference between compliance with anonymity within one's recovery fellowship versus public advocacy? And I think this sort of emerging theme within the recovery advocacy movement is one can disclose one's recovery status at the level of press without identifying one's affiliation with AA or NA at the level of press. Oh, absolutely. And, but look at the, the drug czar who's so active in the, anti, you know, the opiate addiction epidemic right now. He uh, basically cast his anonymity aside, went very public with his uh, involvement and, and identified his mutual aid group. We're actually segueing now into my next topic, which is anonymity. Uh, Bill, I've read some of your articles. I, I've seen the, uh, the Anonymous People movie. Uh, I've heard some of the things you had to say in there. I've read your blog. Uh, and I wonder what – maybe I, I would just ask you to speak a little bit about how you see the history of anonymity in the, in the broader uh, – 12-step context, uh, how anonymity is changing. Is it changing because of the modern technology? It seems to me anonymity is changing for everybody in society. Whether, you have an, whether you're in an anonymous group or not, you're, you have less anonymity today than you've ever had in your life because of things like Facebook and Twitter and, and, Absolutely. and cameras everywhere. And people, even if you don't have Facebook, your uncle does, and he's got your picture all over Facebook. And all that's that. right. Okay. And he's so proud of you for being an NA member. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So. You know, I, I, I can offer some thoughts on that. I think, you know, if I look his story at the, the development of the traditions, uh, they not only reflected um, AA's early experience of its own members and also NA early experience, but it also capitalized on, the, on some degree of knowledge of fellowships that had come before that self-destructive and the issues around which they self-destructed, which were issues around ego and money and power and publicity, uh, religious and political controversies. And, and as you look at this list, you can see the traditions flowing directly out of them. The anonymity tradition, I think, really served four historical functions. One is that it protected individual members for fear of disclosure of their addiction or recovery status, that because of social stigma could have done great harm to themselves, their families, or the organizations with whom they were associated. Secondly, is it protected AA and NA and other 12-step fellowships from the public behavior of members that could have done damage to the organization and prevented people who were suffering from seeking help there. I think the third thing that it did was it prevented, the, 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 the concept of anonymity prevented the emergence of a, leadership, of, a, of a single centralized leader or a leadership class that could have moved 12-step fellowships towards the status of a personality cult as, by the way, happened with Synanon and the implosion that then followed behind that. 
So, so, and then the fourth one is, which I think is, is so much more fundamental, less practical, more fundamental, and that's this notion of anonymity as a spiritual principle. If, if, we, if we see the essence of, of spiritual recovery within a 12-step fellowship is this, is this escape from self, this, this transcendence of one's ego, um, then the spiritual principle of, of ego deflation, uh, humility as guiding principles of not only personal recovery but organizational survival, uh, that's a fourth one and a very key one. Now, the first two, protection of the individual and protection of AA and NA from social stigma, you could make the point that social contexts are very different today than they were in the mid-1930s or they were in the mid-1950s. But my argument would be that I think those third and fourth purposes will be forever valid and, and, and won't, won't change based on shifts in historical context. For example, you could have somebody who meets the technical compliance with anonymity, meaning they're not breaking, they're not identifying themselves as an NA member at the level of press. But in their work and recovery advocacy, basically does that ego inflation where they're out there seeking fame, trying to exploit that movement for financial gain, et cetera, and, ends, and, they, end, and they end up self-destructing in the process. The, the history of recovery is strewn with the bodies of organizations and individuals who sort of shifted away from those principles. So I, I, so I think as we talk about anonymity, we got to break it up in terms of which of those purposes are still valid today. And I think all, of, all four are still valid today, but I think those third and fourth are very critical. The, the other point to be made is that there's a, there's a potential, there is a downside to anonymity, which might be uh, the one we were talking about a minute ago, where because people don't really get a chance to celebrate publicly their NA membership, uh, NA's profile stays lower. And I understand clearly that that's, that that's a downside we're more than willing to live with because the potential downside of the self-destruction and, and all the stuff that you were talking about a minute ago is why we're not doing it. But uh, there's sort of a question of how we offset the, the secret society aspect that becomes uh, uh, unintended consequence of the anonymity principle. You know, what I've done is really encourage people, and this may not be a task for, for NA because in some ways that may be an outside issue, <laughs> but it doesn't say that we can't be not only understanding, but maybe even encouraging of people to participate in a larger movement outside of NA that begins to put a face and voice on recovery and begin to change some of those public attitudes. And that makes and, sense. And that NA is part of a, in, in terms of NA's own organizational humility, can clearly support the stance that there are multiple pathways of recovery and all are cause for celebration. Yes. And participate in those larger movements. So they're, they're walking in large public celebrate recovery celebration events with AA members and SOS members and WFS members and on and on, and celebrate recovery members and on and on, not as NA members, but as individuals in long-term recovery and their families who've been so impacted by addiction and blessed by recovery. 
great point. Yeah, I, I think it's been going on. Uh, it just uh, anonymous people really pushed that as a as a goal for people to step forward as recovered people. Um, I want to mention anonymity. It's certainly anonymity within AA evolved, and I think there can be a misconception that it was anonymous from the very beginning. It clearly wasn't. Yeah, uh, definitely not. Bill, I have newspaper articles of, <laughs> you know, they would announce Bill Wilson, founder of AA, is speaking Thursday night in Cleveland. Right. You know, that, that went on all around the country. And I, I think Bill participated, I think he was a little embarrassed about that uh, and tried to put a lid on it, but he was also very encouraging of Marty Mann to step forward uh, at the head of the Committee for Education on Alcoholism. And she was out there first and last name. And also, if I may add... And their names were listed on the letterhead of NCAE at that point. (laughs) That's right. Uh, And and Marty Mann ended up on NACON, the Advisory uh, Council for Narcotics Anonymous. Um, But they also, if I may, they were pushing the idea of of disease. I think he kind of left it to Marty and the National Committee for Education on Alcoholism to really advance the word disease applying to alcoholism. And that starts as early as 1944 in the very first edition of the grapevine. Yeah, at a policy level, if people ask me, where do we get this concept of disease? Historically, it goes all the way back to the late 1700s. But if you're gonna talk about policy in the 20th century, it's really, Marty took um, this this concept uh, of disease and took it, sort of launched it as a major leap. You don't find, if you did a a word search, for example, of the word disease in the 1939 edition of the big book, you're not going to find much of anything in there. But if you look at NCAA literature in 1944, disease permeates it. So, I mean, in some ways, Marty really took that and saw that as a single foundation for changing public attitudes about alcoholism. Well, Bill, I'm going to be cheeky enough to take a slight disagreement with you. Oh, okay. Allow me. If you look at the first edition of of the big book, there really are references to the word disease. Uh, The unbeliever whose story was taken out of the second edition uses the word disease at page 200 of the first edition. And Bill D., whose story appears in the second edition of the big book, page 187, talked about two people coming to the hospital to to tell him about this new recovery. Well, it could only have been Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson. And they, and, and he says very clearly in that story, they, um, they told me I had a disease, which I thought was remarkable because Bill himself showed a great reluctance to use the word disease. I only caught him using it one time in a, a grapevine article that appears in uh, Language of the Heart, just one time. Right. It seems like he danced around it. And, yeah, he was uh, more comfortable with malady, as you said yeah. earlier, in some other words. You know, my, the, I think the definitive analysis of this, Ernie Kurtz wrote an article in Alcoholism Treatment Quarterly on AA and the disease concept that really traces that history. And you do find references to, z- to disease in some of the early la- AA literature. But if you compare the early AA literature to the early NA literature, you see a radical difference in terms of the centrality of that concept. Okay. Uh, we're past, just a little bit past the one hour mark since we turned, uh, we started, and uh, uh, I've got a wrap-up discussion I want to have. Dave, do you have anything else you want to ask Bill? I, I wanted to ask Bill, you know, on a personal level, what's, you've looked at Thousands of documents, source documents, original materials, first edition books that you, you thought were long out of print. Mm. What, what have you looked at in your life that you just went, wow, 
I mean, this just blows me away. I mean, there's so many. I'm trying to think from the list. Let me give you an, a, a past example and a recent example. Um, when I was studying the Keeley, Archi the Keeley Institutes, which was a private for-profit addiction cure institute founded in 1879, I get to this massive archives all locked up in Springfield. The files have been shipped 50 years earlier. They've never been unwrapped. And I'm going through all this material to write a chapter on the Keeley Institutes. I open this, this brown paper thing all wrapped up with bows. I untie it and it's called the Physician's Law. I open it and, it and it's each physician that was ever hired to work at the more than 120 Keeley Institutes. It's where they went to medical school. But then there's an interesting set, you know, their background, where they worked, the date they were hired at Keeley. But then there's a section that says primary drug, the date they were treated at Keeley, and then the date they were hired at Keeley. So I could use that to figure out that there were over 100 of these physicians who were actually recovering physicians. And, and it's sort of like I open that, and at that moment, I know there's a chapter in the history of recovery mm. that I'm looking at that nobody else in the world is aware of. And that's, I mean, that's where you really start getting the history bug. Now, to, if I could bring that forward, when, when, when Chris and Boyd and I were working on some of the early work on our, our history of NA and some of the early papers we did, I think for me, one of those moments was reading some of the handwritten notes from Jimmy Kay. And, and particularly that when he was writing about addiction and when he was writing about disease. And I got to say, I just said, holy shit. You know, here it is. This was, this was like 2010 or 11 when I'm looking at these notes. And I'm, I'm just in awe. How could somebody in 1954 have leaped so far into the future to have had that level of understanding? And, and then, of course, imagine, imagine the history of N.A. if the first step would have been narcotic drugs. In this as a statement, because almost everybody was addicted to narcotic drugs coming into the first generation of NA. What would have been the history of that fellowship in the 80s when almost nobody was using opioids anymore and everybody was going crazy on cocaine? Amazing stuff. Yeah, this history stuff, uh, we may need a 12-step a, a program for some of us history nuts because it's, uh, it can get pretty addictive itself when you get those kind of discoveries. Cool. Well, okay, let's, let's leap then from history to being futuristic. Uh, what do you see as the challenges and the opportunities for NA and more broadly for the recovery movement going forward? You know, I, I'll go back to, to Ernie Kurtz and I's fascination with the growing varieties of recovery experience, and they're finally beginning to get documented. And I think the question is going to be, can, can NA accommodate an increasing variety of styles of recovery within this single fellowship? And let me mention one, one in particular. Uh, and that is within AA, for example, we've seen a very interesting efforts on the one extreme to almost Christianize AA and AA history on the one hand, and then a very strong secular movement, uh, AA agnostica, quad A, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we're going to see a similar movement within NA of a stronger secular wing 
of NA that sort of reframes and introduces sort of a concept of secular spirituality and reframes some of the step work within that concept. Um, I think the other challenge that NA is going to face is with the growing recovery advocacy movement, we're getting all these new recovery support institutions, recovery homes, recovery schools, uh, recovery ministries, uh, recovery community centers, recovery coaches. You're going to have a lot more NA members in volunteer and paid professional roles in, the, in this arena of recovery support services. So this issue of dual relationships where one's an NA member, but one also is working in these outside roles, I think will be an increasingly tension-filled area for NA to sort out. I think the, the, another one is just the technology of recovery support is moving so rapidly and so much of it based on new technologies. Uh, I've raised the question, at what point might we in the future see more people involved in technology-based recovery support, such as online meetings and online recovery support, uh, compared to the number of people involved in face-to-face -face meetings. When Ernie and I first started looking at this, we always assumed things like online meetings would always be adjuncts to face-to-face -face meetings, until we actually started talking to people. And what we found was a surprising number of people who initiate and maintain recovery with minimal contact with face-to-face -face meetings. And by the way, particular populations, young people, women, high status professionals, people with disabilities with limited ability to access outside meetings. So this, no this notion of a virtual recovery world, will NA be part of that world <laughs> or will it resist moving into that world? I think is gonna be a fascinating area. And, and finally, and, and, and this involves outside issues, but it's an out, these are outside issues that may dramatically affect the future of NA, and that's this explosive growth in, in, in addiction science, and particularly the biological sciences. And, the, and what I would predict would be uh, emergence of radically new medications for the treatment of addiction, and what NA will do with these potentially fundamentally medications that are fundamentally different from the agonist, partial agonist, and antagonist currently used in the treatment of addiction today. So many challenges in the future. Wow, yes. Uh, you know, the one on, the, just to speak for a moment to the one on spirituality and religion and becoming religious or a secular approach to interpreting the principles, uh, my take on that is that 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 reared up fairly strongly in the 90s in NA to the point where there was a movement, I, I believe it was coming from Australia, and but it had a lot of popular uh, appeal within mm -hmm. NA to make some changes in literature, maybe even in the steps, uh, to, to make it more clear that the nature of spirituality in NA can be applied religiously or it can apply it can be applied in a very secular manner it can be applied by atheists mm -hmm. very readily uh, yeah and I think you know part of the upshot of that was was that um, no no uh, existing literature was changed the steps were not changed of course there was a strong upheaval among certain members saying uh, over my dead body kind of thing but 
there were some changes made, like changes in the standards that we use when we speak of a higher power in our literature. So you'll see literature that right. began to develop from the early 90s and on, less uh, mentions of a higher power in a way that could be interpreted as religious. And that would be a fit whether you're secular or religious. And uh, things in Living Clean and, you know, some of our most recent literature uh, making it very clear that very secular approaches, even, even atheists, agnostics, all of that, quite welcome in NA and quite able to adapt these principles to the b belief system that they hold and that without any catches whatsoever. And the culture of NA, I think, is, is very supportive of that. So mm -hmm. Probably more so than it is supportive of the very religious person. I'm kind of embarrassed to say, because I don't think that's right either. I think mm -hmm. right. continuing to be very welcome to the per welcoming to the person who interprets these steps in a very religious way is very important, but also opening it up and saying, uh, it's not, a, it's not, you don't have to interpret it that way. All you have to do is have a concept for this that you're working with with your sponsor and that you're having the experience prescribed around it. The steps are experiences, they're not beliefs. Yeah, I think as time goes on, you're, there's also going to be growing sort of puzzlement about what to do with what I refer to as dual citizenship and recovery. People who are clearly deeply involved in NA, but also involved in Celebrate Recovery at the same time, are also involved in Life Ring Secular Recovery at the same time. So I think the, the religious and secular wings will also be manifested in this dual affiliation. And is that a good thing, bad thing? You know, how do people kind of sort that out? But particularly, you referenced the religious sort of wing of this. Uh, I think there, I've seen a tr tremendous growth in the number of people co-attending Celebrate Recovery in Narcotics Anonymous, particularly in the southern states. And Celebrate Recovery, I take it, as a, as a religious base? Yes, this is a Christian-based uh, adaptation of the 12 steps. Okay. And Probably so one of the most rapidly growing groups right now in the United States. It's difficult to sort of figure out, is this a kind of transient phenomena within uh, the, the churches of the United States, or is this a beginning of a long-term movement of recovery support within religious institutions? Uh, and, I, and I'm not sure, but it looks very vibrant in some places right now. I, I think it's very interesting that the, uh, the, the pastors of, of these churches probably took a look at what was coming out of their basements on Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> Wednesday nights and That's said, true. something's going on down there. What can we do to tap into that? Yeah, and I think some of those ministers went down into those basements and said, wow, if I could get this kind of energy in my church on Sunday morning, I'd be doing great. <laughs> yes, I've heard that. Uh, and, but you're, you're, the way you're framing this is that it, it, the, the issue for NA in the future is how well do we maintain who we are and what we are in our own space, but uh, uh, not feel like we're either competitive with or critical of or somehow shaming of members who have dual membership and various things and that sort of stuff. That's right. I think the, I think the framework for that is in place and has been for a while. The basic frame that, that says uh, you are welcome, of course, to go anywhere you want uh, outside of NA. That's perfectly fine. You can be anything you are, anything you are, and can be anything you wish to be. Uh, when sharing at the NA meeting, there are certain 
parameters that make sure that, that we keep NAMA and that we use language that is consistent with that. We make references to things that are within that uh, space, within that frame. And, and people sometimes don't handle those kinds of distinctions very well, where you make a distinction like that and they think you're criticizing the other thing because mm-hmm. you don't talk about that here. Um, so I just think we, we just need to get more adept at making those kinds of distinctions and, and you know, maintaining the soul of who we are and going forward. That's right. And, this, and also being aware that even subtle changes in language will allow NA to, re, to remain inclusive, and particularly as cultural contexts change dramatically over time in the future. Do you have an example of that in mind, a, a subtle a subtle change that would make us more... Yeah, well, uh, yeah. one example that comes to mind is the secular issue. I, th- I think NA will always be a spiritual program of abstinence-based recovery. But I think within that definition of spiritual, there's going to be an increasingly nuanced understanding of how people who, 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 who are atheists or agnostics can fit within that umbrella. You know, Ernie Kurtz and I have really struggled with this, and we studied this movement within AA in some depth. And kind of what we came up with was this notion of, we began to articulate this idea, we're seeing something called secular spirituality. And we defined that not in terms of God versus no God, but in terms of some commonalities we found across religious, spiritual, and secular pathways of recovery. And and Ernie kind of articulated some of this as what he called his three prepositions. And that was the preposition within. And then part of that spiritual experience is a discovery of previously hidden strength and resources within oneself. And secondly, the the preposition between, which is this powerful connection and identification with community. And then third is beyond, which is this idea of a discovery of of resources and relationships beyond the self that can help one initiate and maintain long-term recovery and enhance quality of life. And I think those three prepositions can equally apply across the religious, spiritual, and secular categories of of recovery frameworks. And then Ernie also had sort of these, when we looked at the content that people talked about, even though they talked about, oh, you know, the, the, the differences, we found this idea of release, this experience of freedom, this, this theme of gratitude, humility, tolerance, forgiveness, and this sense of being at home, finding a community in which you could be yourself within the framework of that community. And we thought those were all dimensions that crossed all these boundaries. Well, that sounds like a great note to, uh, to end it on. Bill, I, I really want to thank you so much for taking time with us to do this. I know you're, uh, you're not doing a lot of interviews anymore. You, you told me. This, this is probably the last, <laughs> based on age and decrepitude. <laughs> well, uh, we so much appreciate that you chose to do it with us, and, uh, and this has been a really great conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bill, thank you for your, for your many contributions to the scholarship of, uh, of recovery history and deep reverence for NA. And uh, it, it's, it's an extraordinary uh, mission that you have undertaken, in my opinion, to, to bring together these incredibly complex uh, sciences and yet 
firmly grounded in a deep reverence for the spiritual fellowship of Narcotics Anonymous. So I, I just want to thank you for that. And I, I'm sorry that people will not see this. I, I'm, I'm glad they're going to hear it. But what they're going to miss out on is the great energy that comes off of you and just how delighted you are to, to talk about these issues, which oh, have really framed you. your life. Yeah. Yeah, this is, it's been my life. <laughs>